So I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're continuing, continuing our study in the book of Titus. Blake did an overview uh, to prepare our minds and hearts as we go through this great, great letter. So essential to not only the churches in Crete, but us today, 2,000 years later. Nothing has changed. God's Word hasn't changed. But I see a lot of similarities also in our churches that resemble uh, the churches in Crete. If you, in Titus 1.12 it says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He wasn't... Uh, that doesn't sound too good or too promising if you said that about Covington. I definitely would not want to live here. But these churches, excuse me, these churches are on an island of Crete. Uh, they were sitting right in the middle of just a, an evil place. Because of that, just like, like any church, you've got to be careful to make sure that what's out there does not infiltrate the church and cause havoc. So Paul has in instructed Timothy... Uh, in the Ephesians church and out uh, instructs Titus, he gives the blueprint of how a church is to function uh, in the church and also in the world. Titus had the responsibility there of straightening out the church, establishing leadership, as we'll see in a few weeks when we talk about elders. Timothy and Titus had strong opposition also. Not only was it from the outside, but we will see within the walls of the church there's going to be some opposition. There's going to be some false teaching that's going on. And Paul had invested his life in these men. These men were gifted by God as they led and instructed the church. They needed this kind of letter from Paul to, to strengthen them, but also give some authority, some, some authority uh, for the tasks that they faced. So when, when Titus or Timothy speaks to the congregation, think about how that would be received when they knew these very words come from Paul himself. Uh, as Blake stated last week, we're not dealing with a lot of doctrine here. We will see the doctrine of election show up next week. Be praying for Brother Paul here as he tackles that a little bit. We see the, the coming of Christ that's going to, not Paul, John, I'm sorry. Paul, if you're preaching next week, that'd be awesome, okay? So uh, we're going to uh, see the deity of Christ here. We're going to see the second coming. So there's not a lot of doctrine. It's more, it's more practical living. So in the first chapters, uh, it's going to address leaders. The second ch uh, chapter focuses on the, the members, and the third chapter focuses on those outside the church and how the church is to behave uh, in the world. So this is kind of the flow. Good and godly deeds of leaders, the good and godly deeds of members, the good and godly living of the church in the face of a watching world. Now this instruction was very, very important, not only for Titus, but for churches on the island of Crete. It was, it was for all churches, including right here at Grace Bible Church. We're determined by the grace of God to follow what Paul is telling Titus. So tonight, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which is a good translation. I've had two people this week alone ask me about Bible translations, and I love the ESV. It's a good, it's not, you know, it's kind of word for word, but I have found that 
it can, it can be wrong. As we're going to see tonight, there's going to be some substitutions of some words that really make, make a big difference. So if you would, let's stand and we'll read verses Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in, the, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we just thank you for the time we have here to study your word. May we, may we hear it, may we understand it, and, and it doesn't do any good if we don't obey it. So we just, just give us the understanding and give us the power to live out uh, what we're studying not in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Keep in mind that this letter, it's a personal letter. It's written to Titus, but it's also, it's, it's not a private letter. It's meant to be read in all the churches. And what Paul said about himself, guess what? Titus already knew that. He spent a lot of time with Paul. Remember, he was in dealing with all of the church of Corinth issues. He knew who Paul was. But it's important, it's important to write it down. This affirms what Titus already knows. And at the same time, those who hear this letter understand that it comes from one of the apostles, one who had been discipled by Christ himself. Same with Timothy, who was a young man. If you were an older man in the church, you may look at uh, Timothy and say, son, you're, you're a young man, you're, you're a good preacher, but you, know, you, don't, you don't know everything. But when they understood God talked to Paul, then Paul instructs Timothy and Titus, those words must be heard, they must be obeyed. So Paul begins this letter with his name. Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? How many of you start a letter with your name? If you're going to write a letter, how many of you guys actually start a letter mentioning your name uh, first? I don't know how long it's been since I wrote a letter. And I've sent several texts today. I sent emails. But back in the day, we just didn't have those devices. I don't know when the last time... We need to do more of that, by the way. Writing letters. There's something real personal about that. But he started with his name, which is, which is odd, uh, before he began to lay out kind of who he is. And I'm just thinking... I did write a few letters back in the day. Cindy used to write me letters. I used to write her letters. If I'm not mistaken, there's a box somewhere, maybe, with letters. We should go home and read those tonight. <laughs> but we were crazy in love back in the day. I can imagine, if I wrote Cindy a letter back in the day, because Paul, you know, he says who he is, and then he says a couple of things about himself. So I, if I was writing a letter to Cindy, I would probably say, Phil, a junior at CHS, a single guy with a bleached blonde mullet, one who, gives per one who drives a purple, a 69 model uh, GMC with chrome wheels with 50 inch tires. I greet you, Cindy Glass, hopefully my future girlfriend. What do you think about that? <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was common. 
it was very common to start in that culture, in the Greek culture, to start a letter with your name first. Now, if I, you know, most of mine were probably would end up in a trash can if it started off with Phil. If Cindy got a letter and she saw Phil, she probably would throw it away, but, but that's, not, that's uh, not how it works. Most of you know who Paul is, but let me just give you a little background. Uh, I won't spend much time here, but just a little background on Paul. He was born in Tarsus. He was uh, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He began as a Pharisee, deeply devoted to Jewish law and traditions. His strict adherence to uh, Pharisaical, Pharisaical... I can't say that word. Say it, somebody. Say it again. Whatever Blake said. Teachings led him to persecute early Christians before the, uh, his conversion. Paul was a highly educated Jewish in Jewish law and theology. He was trained under the renowned Jewish teacher, say it, Gamaliel, say it. Somebody say his name. Say it, Blake. Gamaliel. Gamaliel, is that right? So he was trained under him. This guy was, he was the man. He equipped him with, the, with an understanding of Scripture and Jewish customs. He also was a Roman citizen, and that granted him certain legal rights and privileges, and we know that Paul used those rights and privileges later to his advantage. Saul is who he is, Saul and Paul, same guy, by the way. He was very zealous for God and His Word. He was determined to imprison and even kill anyone who followed Christ. And since Christ had already been murdered and hung on a cross and as far as Saul was concerned, uh, dead, the next thing that he could do is try to stop everyone who followed that man, that heretic who claimed to be God. And even uh, John said a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about Stephen, Saul was there when Stephen was murdered and they laid the clothes at Saul's feet. He's come a long way. Acts 9, 9 says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters uh, to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women might, be, might bring them to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And of course, God gives a, a vision to a man there. And we'll pick up in verse Ananias. In verse 13, it says, And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Interesting observation here. God's choice of Saul or Paul had nothing to do with what he did or what he didn't do. It was simply his sovereign will. So if you think you're too far gone, I can assure you, you're not killing Christians. You're not doing the horrendous things that Paul did. He 
was killing people, trying to stop the people of the way. Galatians 1.3 says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of the living of the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was even born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul here in his letter to Titus, notice he didn't give a, a list of accomplishments. He could have. He could, uh, he could have went on and on for days and days on the things that he had done. Paul was a brilliant scholar, highly educated, the writer of many books in the New Testament. He did mighty miracles, even raising the dead, and was caught up into the third heaven. His resume goes on and on and on. But what did Paul say? What did Paul say he was? He says, I was a servant of God. I was a servant of God. But you know what? The SV got it wrong on this one. He got it wrong. Paul was a slave of God. He was a slave. The word here, and that's what we want to do here at Grace Bible Church. We want to, we want to know how to study the Bible. We want to know when we, when we look at a translation, knowing that it's simply a translation from the originals, and sometimes words are missing or added in order to, not, I don't think intentionally, but in order to uh, convey a thought, but we want to go back and study, what was that word? What did it mean? And it means slave. There's a lot of words that describe who Christians are. We are aliens, strangers, citizens of heaven, light to the world, world, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, members of his body, sheep in his flock, one of my favorite, we're ambassadors. All these descriptions help us understand who we are as Christians. Yet the Bible uses one word more than any word in the Bible. Christians, get this, are slaves. If you're in Christ, you're a slave. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Yahweh. The LSB translation says this in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. Galatians 1.10 says, For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God, or I am striving to please men. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Not servant, slave. Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. So you may ask, why has this word been changed? Why has it been changed to servant? Well, the reason is simple. It's shocking, but it's true. The word slave has been covered up, mistranslated, and almost every English version, all going back to the King James and even prior to that, to the Geneva Bible that predated that. This word doulos, slave, appears 100 and 24 times in the original text. 
but it is only translated only once correctly in the New King James. So the word servant is added and the word slave is removed. Here's the deal. They are not the same words. They're not the same words. There are at least six words that, that can mean servant, and there is a distinction between servant and slave, and doulos is not one of those words. While it is true, uh, some of these duties that a slave would do and a, and a servant would do, they may overlap to, to some degree, but they are two different words, okay? Let me say it this way, and this is, this is how it really sunk into my brain when I was studying this. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Now, if you're going to write anything, that's what you write tonight. <laughs> Servants are hired, slaves are owned. See, there's a difference. A servant has some freedom. He can pick or choose who they serve. They have some level of autonomy or rights. A slave has no freedom and no rights. Now, I, uh, I've got three jobs. Job number one for me, I'm a photographer. But I also have two other jobs, and I have two other bosses. And guess what? I can serve in these jobs that I have. I, can, I have two bosses over here, and I can serve both of them, and I can do it faithfully, and I can give my all. I can serve both of them. I'm their servant, per se. But there's a difference between, between being a servant and a slave of one of them. You see, there is, there's a difference. A slave can't serve two masters. So you can only have one master. So there's a, here's just a big difference in that word. In the Roman world, slaves were considered property uh, to the point that in the eyes of the law, they were regarded as a thing rather than a person. To become someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. So over time, uh, the translators changed this word from slave to servant. To be brief, it was because of the, the stigma, I believe, to slavery in the Western society. They wanted to avoid any association between biblical teaching and the slave trade of the British Empire and also the American uh, era, era when we had slaves. So when I think of slaves, I don't know about y'all, when I was growing up, you remember that movie Roots? Y'all remember that movie? You ever watched that movie? It was brutal. What was the guy's name? Was it Toby? I can't remember. But man, they captured these slaves. They took them in as property. They beat them. And they did whatever they wanted them to do. Sometimes they killed them. When I think of slavery, that's what hits my mind. And if you're in this society and culture, when you say slavery, guess what? That's what you think about. That's horrendous. That's horrendous. But that's far removed from what Paul was talking about when he says, I am a slave of God, right? The Bible condones that type of slavery. But apart from the beatings and the mistreatment, there are some similarities in that. There are some similarities. When Paul said he was a slave, I can assure you that the people he was writing to, 
They knew exactly what he was talking about. Again, they were in the Roman culture. Slavery was a part of life, so much so that uh, nobody ever really questioned it. Slaves in Rome were made up of all ages. You could be young, you could be old, you could be a boy, you could be a girl, different ethnic groups. It was, it was big. As a matter of fact, it was about one-fifth of the uh, Rome's empire or population were slaves. So back in the era, back when this was written, probably about 12 million slaves uh, at the time this was written. They were, it was a major part of the economy. Initially, how uh, Rome got slaves was by military. They would go into battle, they would win, and then they would capture. That's how the initial slavery began in Rome. But while they're there, what do they do? They reproduce. Most slaves in Rome were slaves by birth. They, they were farmers, they, were, they worked in the cities, they were teachers, they were cooks, they were doctors. And if you observe the crowd, sometimes you couldn't tell a Roman citizen from a slave. But here's the deal, there was a difference. At the end of the day, a slave was owned by another. He had no rights. He had no legal status whatsoever. Hear me out. Paul, a slave of God. I hope you can see what Paul was saying now. A slave of God. But this isn't the first time Paul was a slave. In reality, he was a slave just like you and me. Romans 6, 7, beginning with uh, 17, it says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you were, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have you, enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and at the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Just like Paul, prior to his conversion, he was a slave. Prior to your conversion, you were a slave. John 8, 34 says, Jesus telling the unbelieving Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. He uses the analogy of a slave and his master to make the point that a slave obeys his master because he belongs to him. Slaves have no will of their own. They are literally in bondage to their masters. When sin is our master, we are unable to resist it. Every person is a slave. You do not by your free will, choose not to be a slave. It's true, you do have a will, but long as you are a slave to sin, you can choose, Glenn, 
You can choose whatever sin you want to do as a slave to sin. You just can't please Christ. You just can't do it. So what's our issue? What was Paul's issue? What is our issue? We need a new master. We need a new master. Paul, a slave of God. This metaphor of his position really comes to light when you understand a master and a slave relationship. Here's, here's, here's some good stuff right here. A master chooses his slaves. A slave does not choose his master. Let me say it again. I love that. A master chooses his slaves. A slave does not choose his master. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us and us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself, His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So what does a master do? He chooses us. What else does a master do? A master purchases and redeems the slave. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We read this verse a couple weeks ago, Revelations 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the straw and open the seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. What a master. What a master. Unbelievable. In John 15, 15 it says, I no longer call you servants, slaves, right? That's what it says. I no longer call you servants, slaves, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends, for everything that I've learned from my Father I have made known to you. So it's not saying, when you study this, it's not saying that you're not a slave anymore. You're always a slave. You always have a master. But in this relationship, God is now your friend. Just like Abraham. Abraham, a friend of God, he now sees us as friends. When you were a slave in Rome, you simply obeyed your master and that's it, period. You weren't privy to anything else. You weren't privy to ask any questions. You didn't know, have to, he wasn't going to reveal to you what he was thinking or his plan. You had no rights. But with God, this slave relationship goes so much further. It's more than just simply obedience to you, to him. We now know his will. We know his mind. This is a different kind of relationship. Not just like what they were seeing in Rome. We have a new master. And what does this master do? It's unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Let me add one more thing. He brings us into his family by adoption. Romans 8, 5 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, slavery, leaving to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, check what? We're also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul was a slave of God, adopted into the family. Only here, though, it says slave of God, right? Everywhere else, this is the only time it says slave of God. Everywhere else it says slave of Christ. And there's a difference here. And so why does it, when it, God here is the covenant name for Israel, slave of God, but everywhere else it says slave of Christ. But just note here that in this, these, this, these churches in Crete, there was a mixture of people uh, there, was, there was Gentiles in this church. There was, we know there's Jews because in Titus 1.10 it says, speaking of those in the circumcision party, that's referencing to Jews. So possibly, I don't know this for a fact, but I think, I think we can make the case that when Paul was speaking to this church, when he says slave of God, knowing that, that these churches had a lot of Jews in them, he was, he was identif identifying himself with some of the Old Testament men of God. So they would recognize, when he said, I'm a slave of God, they know that the Old Testament also says of other men that they're slaves of God. John calls Moses the slave of God in Revelation 15.3. In Joshua 1.2, Moses, my slave. Joshua 24.29 He's called the slave of the Lord. So it's possible that Paul was affirming his authority as a slave of Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel. Paul also identifies himself in this introduction as an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a slave and he has a message and that message comes from Christ. The word apostle simply means, just don't make something that's not, it's, it simply means a messenger. Apostle, apostle is a messenger. It could really be anybody. You know, if I sent Johnny here to go tell Susie something, well, Johnny was my apostle. It, it wasn't an issue of status. It, it could be the lowliest of persons. They just had a task of delivering a message. The authority of the message, therefore, didn't come from the messenger, but from the sender. In a sense, Christians, all Christians are apostles. Oh, let me make sure we understand that. With a little a, we're all sent out. We all have a message. We all are to go out to the nations and disciple the nations. In that sense, yes, we are, you know, little a apostles. But to be an apostle with a capital A, that office is no longer available, so if you guys were going to put an application to be an apostle, those jobs are already filled up. So none of those are available. Contrary to what they're saying on TV, we can send in $600 and you're going to be an apostle. They'll send you an official letter, and if you add another $200, they will add your wife. So it's over. There's no more big A apostles. Why? Because 
those apostles had to be chosen and called by Jesus himself. They had to witness the resurrected Jesus. And the Bible says Paul is the last one to see Christ. They were also given power and authority to do miracles and wonders. Listen to this statement right here. One of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom, I sent this to uh, y'all this week, I don't remember this. Freedom leads to slavery and slavery leads to freedom. Freedom leads, what? Freedom from sin, okay? Freedom leads to slavery and slavery leads to freedom. As soon as, as soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. So prior to Christ, while you were a slave to sin, everything you did, everything you did prior to Christ, all the good works that you thought were good, you know what they were? They were sin. They were done in the flesh. They don't, they're not written down for you. When you died, you go to heaven and you say, look, I helped. Uh, Aunt Lulu across the street, she's 97 years old. Doesn't that show up somewhere in the books of good works I've done? Sin. It's all sin in the flesh. It's only counted. That's a filthy rag. Everything you do in the flesh as a slave of sin is a filthy rag. It means nothing. It's actually sin. But when you're saved, you actually at this point now can do good works. We're created to do good works. We're going to see that in Titus. That's what it's all about. Right teaching leads to godly living, good works. And if, if, our, if our lips are not matching up with our life, then we need to shut it down. We need to shut it down. Galatians 2.20, about to close. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So question tonight, who is your master? Who is your master? But we all have one. We all have a master. Are you devoted to God? Are you in complete submission to Him? Ask yourself the question. Are you devoted to God and are you completely submitted to Him? Are you totally dependent on Him? Is your life a life of obedience to Him? Let me tell you something. When you really know and know for a fact that you've been set free from, a sla from slavery to sin, I can assure you that person delights and enjoys the one that has set him free. Because when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And don't let this be the case. Don't let this be the case. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Master, Sovereign God. Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says this will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in, who is in heaven will enter. So slaves delight in their master's law. And that law, it's not burdensome. So if you don't know Christ tonight... Let me, let, me, let me tell you something. You're a slave. 
you're a slave of sin. Well, how? What needs to happen? Well, you need to be redeemed. You need to trust Christ. Trust what He did. Because nothing you do, nothing you're, everything you do mounts to zero apart from Christ. Righteousness and perfection is required to go to heaven. To go to heaven, you have to be perfect. Absolutely no sin. And everybody in this room is going to fall short of that. Everybody. And the only way to, to be righteous is put your trust and faith in the one who did come, born of a virgin, lived this life perfectly, obeyed the Father perfectly. And because of that, he was righteous. And they took him to a cross. They nailed him on the tree. And what Christ did fulfill is God put sin on him and then God imputed his righteousness to me and therefore I'm righteous it had nothing to do with me I received it by faith but the evidence you do you do that is you you trust him you deny yourself you take up your cross and you follow Christ now let me set John up for next week. I'll read it one more time. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Why was he a slave? Why was he an apostle of Jesus Christ? For the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth which is according to Godness in hope of eternal life which God who, can, who cannot lie promised it from all eternity, but at the proper time, manifested in His Word in preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our God and Savior. So now, you kind of get some, you kind of know where Paul's at when he says, I'm a slave. He was solely devoted to God. Everything he did was for Christ.